Before I start, let me just say thank you not only to Diana, but to Kirby, to Renan, to everybody here who has helped me sort of set this presentation up. And thank you to the Montana Historical Society for having me. I, I cannot think of a better audience for this material. I know many of you will know more about parts of Little Bighorn than I do. And I look forward to sort of sharing our perspectives at the end of the talk. I'd like to thank the Soldier Wolf family of the Winder River Reservation in Wyoming, who are the people who started me down the path of studying women at Little Bighorn. This is the traditional image of Little Bighorn. In the middle is Custer, and he's got short hair and a mustache, or kind of medium shoulder-length hair and a mustache. But for me, what is most wrong, he didn't have medium-length hair at the Battle of Little Bighorn, is that you don't have women in this picture. And women were crucial to understanding what went on in so much. So, as people know, the Battle of Big, Little Bighorn was June 25th to June 26th, mostly happening on June 25th, 1876. George Armstrong Custer and about 700 7th Cavalry troops attacked a large village of 1,500 to 2,500 warriors and a significant number of women, children, and the elderly. I've seen figures of up to about 10,000 people for that village. And Custer's strategy included attacking the women and children. Edward Godfrey said Custer expected women and children to be fleeing to the bluffs on the north, for in no other way do I account for his wide detour. So if you look at the Little Bighorn site, I was told not to do maps. You don't need to read anything on the maps. I'll just sort of point out. So this is the, where the visitor's center is today, and it is where Native warriors caught up with Custer and his troops. And that's not where the women and children were, if that's where he actually meant to be. So he was going towards the Cheyenne village, which was here. And this is from William Philo's 1877 map, done from interviews with people who were at Little Bighorn the year before. I want to give you an entirely different image to contextualize the Battle of Little Bighorn. This image was collected by Alfred Krober in 1899, part of his dissertation research at Columbia University. And this image shows how women traveled in the world. Ella Deloria, the Lakota historian in Waterlily, described how winter camps and summer camps were different. As usual in winter, a series of villages were strung along the creek on both sides. So this would have been the winter camps. To go visiting, one must follow a timber line instead of cutting across a common or following a curving line of teepees as in summer. So within Plains Indian art, circles and squares are often the same thing. So this is a summer teepee circle along with sort of stars of the summer skies. And what you can see is the path between the winter camps and the summer camps. This here in the middle is a river, and these tracks are Trevoy tracks. And so while this looks very abstract, it's actually a picture of women moving between winter and summer places to live. 
So there was no one place to live for women during this period before 1876, but women brought their homes with them. And if you look at the maps of Little Bighorn from that perspective, you can see that these were classic summer camps with the big round teepee circles. This summer camp was drawn together by Sitting Bull Sundance the week before. And you had thousands and thousands of people coming together. And some of those thousands of people were also the people who'd fought at the Battle of Little Rosebud on June 17th. I just want to step back for a second. This is a map of, this one doesn't show up at all, so if you look at the ones around the edges, they show up. It's like, that, these show up better. Um, if you can see, the, this is a blob, whereas the maps around the edges are rather a useful picture of the United States of America. So the palest green is the short grass prairie. The medium green is mixed grass prairie, and the dark green is tall grass prairie. Around here is Laramie, Wyoming. And I was converted to Western history in part because I live in Laramie, Wyoming, uh, these days just during the summer. This is my yard, <laughs> right? I'm a girl from Brooklyn, and I live in a yard which has pronghorn in it. And you can kind of see the dry grass. It's actually, it looks lusher than it actually is. This is grass that cannot support a cow-calf pair for more than a month. It's, you know, 32 acres and it won't feed anything. Um, however, it does have a wide number of resources for traveling animals, and it's also right next to the Snowy Mountains. So Marcel Kornfeld and his colleagues talk about islands of resources in the Great Plains. So this is Snowy Mountains in July, you know, you don't want to be here in the middle of winter time, but in the summertime, you can get lots of useful resources. One of the most important sets of resources were the lodgepole pines, which became the poles for people's lodges, for people's teepees. So that when you think about the land, people moved up and down the land according to what resources were available during what parts of the year. I don't have a time of year for this particular picture, but I would say it's probably a kind of fall or winter picture. People are, the, the girls are wearing blankets so they're looking cold. The ground is very bare. It's the, this is a William Sewell photo and it's said that the ground is bare because the horses have eaten all the vegetation already. And then these same poles become the basis for women's trevois. And these trevois could carry 200 pounds of materials. So women would basically pack up their lodges, their teepees, which were considerable and quite comfortable to live in, onto these Travoy, and as long as you had enough time to pack these travoy, you could travel with relative comfort for thousands of miles. I live Laramie, Wyoming, which is about here. Little Bighorn is right about here. 
So it's right near the top of the range for how women would travel. So this is a picture of Little Bighorn. Like if I'm standing here, the visitor center is about there. Taken July 2013. So this is approximately what Little Bighorn would have looked like at the time of the battle. And you can see it's green, there's no snow anywhere. The day of the battle was incredibly hot. It was well into the 90s. You can see why somebody would want to be in this space in the summertime. It provided the name Greasy Grass Creek was because the grass was lush and perfect for feeding the horses. If we go back to this particular picture of the Travois, you can kind of see that the landscape is similar and that Travois can navigate that particular kind of landscape. That's my setting for how women see the world, how they are traveling from one place to another. And so Little Bighorn is one space in many up and down what's essentially a river of grass that these women traveled. One of the really useful things about Little Bighorn having been such an important moment in history is that there are hundreds of interviews from that time. Now, I would estimate about 5% of the interviews done after Little Bighorn were with women. But even 5% presents an unusually large database for women who are often, too often described as mute in the historical record. This is one testimony from Mrs. Spotted Horn Bull, also known as Pretty White Buffalo, who was Hunk Papa. And she was interviewed by James McLaughlin, enemy of Sitting Bull. So her interview certainly has a certain slant, but she gives an idea of how that moving worked. Late the night before, I and the other women of the Hunk Papa had labored to make ready for the march that we were going to take up that morning. The village by the greasy grass was but a stopping place for a day or two, and we had no thought of a fight with the white man. But we were to move out to the northwest, sort of even further up into the grassy plains, and I had made many bundles of my store. So this, wasn't, this was a woman who was ready to move. Moving Robe's story tells of a woman collecting resources where she was. Several of us young Indian girls were digging wild turnips. I was then 23 years old when I saw a cloud of dust rise beyond a ridge of bluffs in the east. We girls looked towards camp and saw a warrior ride swiftly, shouting that the soldiers were only a few miles away and that the women and children and old men should run for the hills in the opposite direction. And Moving Robe is also Hunk Papa. Both of these stories start on the day of the battle. The Cheyenne, however, had much longer experience with Custer. When you look at Kate Bighead's testimony, otherwise known as Antelope, she starts before Little Bighorn. And I think it's useful to go back a little bit to see the experience that the Cheyenne had, which was well known to the Lakota. So Kate Bighead testimony is, I was in the camp besides the Washita River, this would have been in 1868, when Custer 
and his soldiers came there and fought the Indians. Our chief Black Kettle and other Cheyennes, many of them women and children, were killed that day. It was early in the morning when the soldiers began the shooting. There had been a big storm and there was snow on the ground. All of us jumped from our beds and all of us started running to get away. I was barefooted, as were almost all of the others. Our teepees and all of our property we had to leave behind and was burned by the white men. So here, this is Custer, here attacking the camp, attacking a woman, attacking other people. This is from uh, Frank Leslie's paper, uh, December 26, 1868. This is an attack on a winter camp. This was an attack on not a huge village, but a couple of lodges strung out along a river. And it was also an attack when most of the warriors were away because they were out hunting. Custer basically reprised the Sand Creek attack same on the same group, same time of year, same winter camp that um, Shivington had in 1864. The one thing that Custer did right at Washita that Shivington Shivington was a genocidal maniac. Custer was not quite as genocidal as Shivington. But what Custer did end up doing was capturing 53 women and children. And so this is an image, again by Sewell, of Custer and some of the captives from Washita. And it even says in the inscription that these are the women from Washita. However, just because he didn't kill people, it didn't mean that he didn't abuse people. I think of Custer as the Jeffrey Epstein of his day, in that basically the women were taken and systematically used for sexual purposes. These are notes from the Lilly Library, but they're also reproduced frequently elsewhere. Romero, who was known as Romeo in Custer's memoir, was put in charge of them, and on the march, Romero would send squaws around to the officer's tent every night. Says Custer picked out a fine-looking one and had her in his tent every night. And that woman who was picked out is known as Manasita. And Manasita is a very interesting woman in her own right. In Custer's memoir, he talks about how she was divorced from a Cheyenne warrior named Little Eagle after she shot him in the knee. <laughs> There is a description of a marriage in Custer's memoir, but he specifically does not say that this was Manasita that he was married to. I think it probably was. She was married to him by Mawissa, who was her aunt in Cheyenne kinship. Not sure what the kinship relationship would be in English kinship. Manasita is described by Custer as helping him track also described as teaching him sign language so they could communicate with each other. She had two children around the time she was with Custer, Bird Girl, who she probably had before she met Custer, and Yellow Swallow, who she had after she met Custer. There's a lot of questions about dates and parentage. White Cow Bull, who is Oglala, described her as being at Little Bighorn. Kate Bighead, her cousin, told of Manasita's morning the death of uh, long yellow hair Custer, but implied that she was not at Little Bighorn. More recent research says that she wasn't at Little Bighorn. 
And the image is by William Sewell, and it's supposed to be of Manasita. I have no idea whether that's true or not. I suspect it's probably not. But it is a Cheyenne woman of that generation, and that does give an idea of what she might have looked like, although I kind of doubt that's actually her picture. But, you know, we can always trust Wikipedia on these things, of course. (laughs) So this picture is of the battle by one bull who was Sitting Bull's nephew. So while Montecito was probably not at Little Bighorn, there were lots of women and children who were at Little Bighorn. One Bull's image here shows them on the hill. So if we go back to this image, this picture, right? That means that puts them on this hill there, across the river and above there. And so the women and children will probably have been in these hills watching the battle down below them. The interviews from that time give more information about what women were doing on that hill. So, for example, Mrs. Thunderhawk said, when Custer first appeared opposite of the village, bullets were flying around the teepees, and she ran off, leaving the other wife with Thunderhawk. And she went over in the hills with the other women, And when the news that the Indians were whipping the soldiers came, she went back out on the hills with the other women, and the old men, when she got there, was sitting bull. They mentioned the other wife. The other wife was later known as Julia Face, and Julia also had testimony collected from camp. And so she says her husband was in the teepee, suffering from a wound on the left hip he received on the rosebud, and she was caring for him. And she had been in the hills just prior to this where she went during the Reno fight. And what I think is so interesting about these two testimonies is they are from women from exactly the same household who make different decisions. Women are making decisions about how to survive this battle. And I think of this one as being the second Mrs. Thunderhawk spends most of her time in the hills, whereas the first Mrs. Thunderhawk, Julia Face, spends time with her husband. And also note that what Julia Face is doing here is something that a medic would do in the American army. There are no medics amongst the warriors of the Lakota and the Cheyenne. What they have are female relatives who take those, do those tasks. If we go back to this picture, but there's somebody on a horse and that might well be Sitting Bull, given that, given that this picture is actually by one bull who's one of Sitting Bull's nephews. This is one of the saddest pictures for me of Little Bighorn. It shows why women were running for the hills. Women were killed that day. There were a number of women who were killed down in a little grove of trees in the first Reno attack. According to American military records, The Arikara are blamed for these deaths. This image clearly shows that the Americans were blamed for this. One of the ironies of this is that these women were not just outside of the American system. These women were well-connected into the American system. So traditional dresses are made out of hide. These women are not wearing hide dresses. These women are wearing printed calico dresses. 
It was in the 90s on Little Bighorn that day. Women were wearing light cotton dresses that they made from trade goods that they received, mostly from their work with buffalo hides, right? So these weren't women outside the system. These were women who were integrated into the American system, and yet that was completely not recognized by the people who attacked them again and again. A number of women fought back. So one of the women who fought back was Buffalo Calf Road, who was known as the woman who saved her brother, which is the Cheyenne name for the Battle of Rosebud. In Kate Bighead's account, who was the cousin of Manasita and the Cheyenne woman who talked about Washita, she's known as Calf Trail Woman. So I didn't figure out these guys were the same until after my initial research. So this is Buffalo Calf Robe at the battle where she saved her brother. So right there is her brother, who she sort of took off the battlefield. During Little Bighorn, she didn't fight directly, but she followed her husband around, and she had a gun and so would shoot people as at people if she thought her husband was in danger. Moving Robe did fight directly, and she fought directly because of the death of her brother. I saw my father preparing to go to the battle. I sang a death song for my young brother who had been killed. My heart was bad, revenge, revenge, for my brother's death. I thought of the death of my young brother, One Hawk. I ran to a nearby thicket and got my black horse. I painted my face with crimson and braided my black hair. I was mourning, I was a woman, but I was not afraid. And then other warriors on the battlefield used her, saying, look, there is a girl there riding on the thing. Do, you know, be brave as this girl who is writing. <laughs> Beatrice Medicine outlines a couple of different roles that women have that go outside of the roles of traditional wife and mother. A couple of these roles included Nina Waki, a manly woman who was known for her skills in war. I think you can count both Moving Robe and Calf Road Woman as Manawakis. But she also details Ninaki, who is the chief woman or favorite wife. Chief women were often leaders among women. I think one way to understand Monasita is to see her as being recognized in the community and seeing herself as a chief woman that because of her connection with Custer, who had prestige within that community, she herself had prestige that she was willing to use to lead people. Kate Bighead gives a description of another kind of woman's help. I found a pony and followed the warriors to watch the fighting as I often did, since my nephew, Noisy Walking, expected me watch and sing songs to give him courage. I rode away searching for my nephew who had been shot and stabbed. I stayed with him and brought him to his mother, but Noisy Walking died that night. So she's doing two different things here. She's singing songs to encourage him, and she's also being the medic. She's also being the ambulance that brings him back to his mother. So while Kate Bighead thought of herself as supporting the troops, Americans did not see this the same way. So Charles Rudio, 
talked about, I found the woman at the revolting work of scalping a soldier who was perhaps not yet dead. Two of the ladies were cutting away, while two others performed a sort of war dance around the body and its mutilators. I will not attempt to describe to you my feelings at witnessing this disgusting performance. And it was a brutal performance, but it was also a performance by women who either had been at or knew of Washita. So it was violence done to people who had experienced violence themselves. Let me sum up this part of the presentation by just saying women did the support work that men did in the US Army. And this support allowed young men to focus on fighting rather than other details of war. Women fed the men, women gave ponies and horses to men, women did the medical work for men, but this work that they did also helped them survive the battles themselves. And so I want to end this presentation by giving you three examples of survival. First is Manasita. Manasita, after Custer left her, returned to her ex-husband, Little Eagle, and then she left him again. Cheyenne, Lakota, and Arapaho divorced each other quite cheerfully if they did not get along. She remarried four times, including to a white man named Isaac Alfrey. She had five additional children. The 1900 census has her being 58 years old, living with Isaac in Oklahoma in a fixed dwelling, which I assume means a sort of a regular house. And she got citizenship in 1891, and she eventually dies in 1921. So this is the 1900 census. This here says Morning Woman, Cheyenne, Cheyenne, 1891, and fixed. I love censuses as a just way to get a quick snapshot of how people are doing. Moving Row, also known as Mary Crawler, went with Sitting Bull to Canada, but returned. And her father, Slohan, otherwise known as Crawler, is listed in the 1885 Standing Rock Agency Rations issue. We all know the name Standing Rock. Standing Rock people have been making trouble and protesting for a long time. It is an honorable history that they are living up to. This is an image from Hardoff supposedly done in 1937, but as she died in 1934, it probably wasn't a 1937 photograph. If we look at some of the census records for moving rope, the records have her living on a farm. She's head of the household that's free-owned, and she's a 66-year-old widow. She doesn't read or write. She's living in South Dakota. She speaks English, and she's a cattle rancher. Eventually, she dies in 1934. She's a Standing Rock Sioux, so she remains in Standing Rock for the rest of her life. The cause is cirrhosis of the liver, badly misspelled. And you can never tell when you've got things like that. It's just like, oh, she used to drink occasionally, or that was actually a medical diagnosis. It's very difficult to tell. So those are sort of two stories of individual women who may or may not have been at Little Bighorn. Let me go back to the image that I started off with, because I also want to sort of tell a tale of 
cultural survival. So this is an image of, you know, my, my description of this image is of winter camps and then moving to summer camps. This image, which is very similar and kind of in structure and was on a similar kind of leather bag, this is actually described as Krober as these are mountains, these here are teepees, and this, remember that squares and circles are the same thing, this is the sun and these are the rays of the sun. And I put this image up because I have two images from the Soldier Wolf family. So this is work in progress, excuse the sort of not very good photographs, it doesn't do this justice, by Florida Soldier Wolf, who is an 87-year-old resident of the Wind River Reservation, who has been doing crafts the entire life. She is a well-known beater, she's a well-known artist, and these are just things that she's doing. And so this is a picture of a sun that she's doing. And this is a picture of mountains. And just like in the leather work, rivers are depicted as parallel lines. And for me, what this shows is that the cultural awareness and the sort of aesthetics of Arapaho art form and, by extension, Plains Indian art forms live on. So despite the fact that the Cheyenne, the Lakota, some of the Arapaho were pushed onto reservations afterwards, Native American culture lives on. Native American culture is still being reproduced and that you can see direct traces from the worldviews of the 19th century to the worldviews of the 21st century. <laughs>